Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I'm joined by Megan Crow, Elizabeth McNulty, and Erica Slater. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Hi. We are going to address a topic today that is kind of in the news, in the little world that we live in, trial attorney news in Missouri. And recently, our Supreme Court, the Missouri Supreme Court, handed down an opinion, Ordinola Velasquez versus University Physician Associates, which essentially upholds medical malpractice non-economic caps. First, non-economic caps in medical malpractice cases were first passed in 1986. Then many years went by where we all litigated knowing that there was a cap on non-economic damages, but it had a yearly increase, sort of a cost of living increase. So by the time 2005 came around, which was the next, quote, round of tort reform, the non-economic cap had grown from, I think it was originally $350,000 to close to $700,000. In 2005, the legislature again addressed this issue and put a hard cap of, again, I believe it was $350,000 with no cost of living increase. Then it took a number of years. Again, things moved kind of slowly in the, in the courts. A number of years before that was challenged. And in 2012, the Missouri Supreme Court handed down the Watts opinion, and the Watts opinion held that medical malpractice caps on non-economic damages were unconstitutional. They cited the Seventh Amendment to the Missouri Constitution, indicating that the right to a trial by jury shall be held inviolate as to all aspects of the case. And the court interpreted that amendment to include the jury's right to award damages, economic or non-economic. So in 2012, there was no longer a cap on non-economic damages. And again, this only applies to medical malpractice actions. So we had a number of years where the legislature tried to put caps back on, but they were dealing with this idea that it had been declared unconstitutional. So how do we fix this? So in 2015, the legislature did a really unique thing and decided to repeal common law medical malpractice cases. Just basically say there is no longer any common law right to file a lawsuit against a physician or a hospital or healthcare provider under the idea of medical malpractice. And instead, they replaced that common law cause of action with a statutory cause of action, which was identical to the common law cause of action. And you may be saying, Well, why would someone do that? And the answer is because there's a general idea that the legislature can giveth and the legislature can taketh away. The example of that is wrongful death. There was never a cause of action for wrongful death until the legislature created that cause of action many, many years ago. So if the ability to sue someone is created by the legislature as opposed to years and years of common law, the courts have held that the legislature can limit or repeal that cause of action. So because there's a precedent, 
for the legislature being able to reduce or take away a statutory cause of action, they simply got rid of the common law cause of action and created a statutory cause of action. At the same time they created the statutory cause of action, they put medical malpractice non-economic caps back on. And Amy, we ended up with the strange situation in Missouri where the, according to the Supreme Court, based on another case, Dotson in 2016, that we were involved in, the Missouri Supreme Court said that caps on damages for medical malpractice in wrongful death cases were constitutional because wrongful death cases were a cause of action that were was created by the legislature through statutes. But in reading the Watts case from 2012, caps were not constitutional for medical malpractice cases where the person did not die because of their injuries, because that was a cause of action that existed at common law. So we had a very icky situation in practice, which is if you are going to be negligent while caring for someone in a medical setting, you are financially better off if they had passed away. Yes. Which did not feel good for lawyers litigating these cases. It does not feel good and it's not right. No, it's backwards. It confuses people that don't understand what's going on here because most people think, and I think conventional wisdom would tell you, that if someone dies by negligence, you should recover more money and not less due to the fact that that person is no longer here through no fault of their own generally. Right. And then in 2015, when these caps went back into effect, lawyers doing what we do, medical malpractice, have all been waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh in again now that these caps were issued after the Watts case in 2012 and seeing if the makeup of this Supreme Court would find the same way as Watts did based on the fact that the legislature added this language to the statute saying that they abolished the common law cause of action, which is what Watts had a problem with. And the Missouri Supreme Court found in the Sanders case in 2012 and reiterated in the Dotson case in 2016, which we were involved in, that the caps on wrongful death medical malpractice damages were constitutional because that cause of action did not exist at common law and was created by the legislature. And that brings us to now. The Ordinola Velasquez case was filed and proceeded to trial, straight up medical malpractice case, with a verdict in favor of the plaintiff of $30,000 for past economic damages, which isn't affected. We never have a cap, (laughs) not yet, on economic damages, and included non-economic damages award of $300,000 for past and $700,000 for future for a total of $1 million dollars. So if you're applying the current caps of $400,000 for a non-catastrophic injury and $700,000 for a catastrophic injury, the million dollars exceeded, whether it was the $400,000 or the $700,000 cap. And there was an argument in that case as to which cap applied, and the trial court actually decided it was the $700,000 cap, and then the Supreme Court upheld that one. But the big issue is, what do we do? What do we do now? We have a new statute from 2015 that has created a statutory cause of action for all medical malpractice, not just wrongful death. But you just can't erase hundreds of years of common law medical malpractice. At least that's what we thought. The Supreme Court ruled that, oh, yeah, you can. The 
legislature is within its power to create a statutory cause of action, and within that power includes limiting that statutory cause of action in such a way as applying non-economic caps, so to cap the damages. And I read the opinion. It's not a very lengthy opinion with respect to the reasoning of saying it's perfectly okay for the legislature to dismiss hundreds of years of common law, create a statutory cause of action that's within their power to do so. And at that same time, ignoring the Constitution, right. ignoring the Seventh Amendment right to trial by jury. So you could look at this in an alarmist way, which of course I do, <laughs> beyond just this is, in my opinion, very harmful to not only our clients, but anybody who happens to have experienced medical malpractice. Now, that's not different, right? That's been around since 1986. We still shouldn't be numb to it. We still shouldn't lose sight of how really wrong that is, both in terms of, in my humble opinion, morally, but also constitutionally. Especially because the only way to change the Constitution in Missouri is to have the voters of the state approve a change to the Constitution. That's the only way to do it. So the court is bound to interpret and apply it, but they can't change what it says. That just seems to be lost in this opinion. So the bottom line in the opinion is the Supreme Court ruled the legislature can end run the Constitution by, quote, creating a new statutory cause of action, which, by the way, was not new. The idea of medical malpractice was not new, and that's in contrast to the Wrongful Death Act, which was a new cause of action, a new statutory scheme, because previous to the statutory right to wrongful death claim, it didn't exist. That's because, obviously, the person who is injured dies with the claim. Right. Yes. So that's why it's statutorily created, because... The person who is dead is obviously the one injured, and then that claim is transferred to other people who are not the ones who are the victim of the medical malpractice physically. I guess what I think is interesting about this opinion is that it seems to ignore Watts and instead make justification based on a comparison to the workers' compensation statute. And what I found particularly compelling about the dissent was that it explains that the workers' compensation statute isn't identical to the claim at common law like the medical malpractice claim is. Exactly. And Erica, did you read the dissent? And what are your thoughts about the dissent, the lone dissent? I did. So the Missouri Supreme Court has seven justices on it. I feel like, you know, we need to give a lot of backstory for the people listening at home. You know, my mom. So <laughs> make sure she understands it, too. <laughs> so the Missouri Supreme Court has seven justices. Five of the justices signed on to the majority opinion, and Judge Draper filed a dissent. And then Judge Ransom, who is our newest Supreme Court justice, did not participate in the decision. And the interesting thing about the dissent is that Judge Draper started out by referencing his opinion in the Sanders case, which was the 2012 case that we mentioned earlier, which found that medical malpractice caps in wrongful death cases are constitutional. He had set out in that opinion almost a decade ago that he was worried about the legislature's ability 
to abolish a claim at common law based on the way that the court ruled in the Sanders case, of which Judge Draper dissented in that case as well. And it was kind of a I told you so type of tone to the dissent and or I told myself so maybe (laughs) and saying that now the court has done what he saw coming to pass and obviously doesn't approve of that. The other interesting thing about the opinion is there's a footnote from Judge Fisher that says in the Datsun case, which again we mentioned earlier, which is a 2000. 16 case that we were involved in that reiterated that the caps are constitutional and wrongful death cases. The court looked at that case, and part of our argument was based on the equal protection and separation of powers clauses in the Missouri Constitution. And that case, again, dealt with the wrongful death medical malpractice claim. And Judge Fisher said that those Portions of the Constitution were not raised in the Ordinola Velasquez case, so the court was not addressing those arguments. Often, we see in opinions, judges will kind of forecast that they may look at different arguments or different interpretations of the law in a certain way based on their opinion. And it's almost a signal to the attorneys that work on those types of cases, we would consider this argument differently. Now, based on the rest of the opinion, I'm not sure that was an open invitation (laughs) to argue the case differently, and it may come out differently. But that's always an interesting thing to note in the opinions. And I guess on a lighter note, I did think it was a little funny in the opinion that since the case was appealed and involved a constitutional issue, it should have been appealed straight to the Supreme Court, and they had jurisdiction over that. And... (laughs) Judge Fisher said it was interesting that the appellate court didn't notice that they didn't have jurisdiction until they let the lawyers brief the entire case. But <laughs> and then he goes on basically saying, "But anyway, yeah, whatever, <laughs> yeah." And it, you know, we're I'm sure, now. yeah, I'm sure the lawyers didn't mind. They were going to have to do the work anyway. Maybe it gave them more time to prepare their arguments at the Supreme Court level. So the question that comes to my mind is, again, not. Not to be an alarmist, but it really is worrisome to me that the legislature can disregard an amendment. This time, it's the seventh. But next time, which one will it be? And I know that we're in a place politically where, at least in the state of Missouri, it's controlled by one party and everyone seems to be of the same mind. But I think it doesn't take a true historian to recognize how things change sometimes on a dime politically and who's in charge. And so the precedent set not only by the legislature, but now by our Supreme Court does bring me some concern. It could be First Amendment, it could be Second, name your favorite amendment. And there does seem to be some argument that if the legislature wanted to take away a right and rewrite it somehow, I don't know, you're looking at a a, a roadmap to do that. So talking about constitutional challenges, because again, this is something that I've seen on the rise in our state and, and perhaps other states as well. The legislature is kind of, in my opinion, creeping into the judicial branch, little, little baby steps into the judicial branch. 
And Erica, I mean, I, I love the idea of the separation of powers argument. And what I think will happen, many people will read footnote nine and look at that and say, is this an invitation? Is this someone saying, hey, this is the way we're ruling today, but what about tomorrow? And the way to preserve your constitutional challenge to any law is to first plead it in your petition. So our advice to practitioners out there who are working in the medical malpractice or really pretty much any civil litigation field or criminal litigation field for that matter is to be aware of what's going on in the state house. Be aware of what's going on at the highest level of our courts. And if it's a law that is concerning to you or your clients, be sure to plead the unconstitutionality of it. Because if you fail to do so, it could be problematic. So I'm thinking to myself, I think every petition I file going forward in medical malpractice is going to challenge the constitutionality. I mean, I know that we've always challenged the constitutionality of the 2015 law, but certainly this gives us more reason to do so. And it's interesting, too, because every time we file our petitions, you know, we're kind of blanket putting in a constitutional challenge. And when we're talking about advocacy and taking cases up through the appellate level, it's interesting because, you know, these new medical malpractice caps that went away for MedMal, where you don't die, after the Watts case that were reinstated three years later, they were around for six years before the Supreme Court weighed in. So it's a real interesting kind of quagmire of timing for our clients as far as when their case occurs and what the status of the law is at the time you're litigating the case. And you drop a constitutional challenge to this statute and everyone on this side of medical malpractice cases were waiting for the right case to go up to see when it would be taken up, much like the Watts case did with that cap. I understand it from a legal perspective based on our training. It's a very, very different thing to explain to our clients who don't have legal training, explain to someone who is just kind of at the mercy of whichever way the wind is blowing in this field of practice at any time. You know, that law is changing and that wind is changing based on the fact that we have a legislature that's represented very strongly by one party and then a Supreme Court that the justices are more conservative. And that's no different than looking at the federal level when you have each branch of government and the Supreme Court when they are all represented by the same party, things kind of start going too far to one side or another. I don't necessarily applaud and think it's awesome when, you know, all Democrats are in the White House, Congress, and the Supreme Court is super liberal. When the pendulum swings too far either way, I think it's damaging for the country as a whole. And I do believe in those checks and balances and not letting things go too far askew one way or another. You're going to find 100 million people who are going to argue the opposite of me, but I really believe in that system and the checks and balances working, and I see this opinion kind of a symptom of that being thrown off. 
because the people who are affected by the laws, those who have a medical malpractice case, or on the other hand, are the parties who are being sued in medical malpractice, they don't enter the system until the claim arises and it's already decided for them. And for one party or another, if that gets too unfair, if you will, I think that's where we really have trouble in the way things work for our clients and, quite frankly, the defendants in their defense as well, if it goes too far the other way. I think that's well said. And it makes me think about the argument for CAPS that was made many, many years ago and sort of appears to be repeated incessantly, which is the high cost of premiums, medical malpractice insurance, and that gets conflated to the high cost of health care, which there's no real link there from the data. When it's placed in the public discourse that way, oh, the high cost of this, the high cost of that, it's natural for people to say, oh, yeah, that's healthcare is too high. I can't afford that. Lots of people have to file bankruptcy because of medical bills and that type of thing. And they buy into the idea that it's good for the economy. It's good for my pocketbook for there to be caps so it doesn't trickle down to me. And that's been the argument, which, of course, it's just been very difficult to fight against. But I will say that I've got a case pending in a more rural county. Pretty much lots and lots of people believe that medical malpractice cases and particularly medical malpractice verdicts are bad. They're bad for healthcare costs, that type of thing. Frivolous lawsuits, blah, blah, blah. But I was doing some research for this case we've got set in a rural county. And I will tell you, there are so many comments about how medical malpractice lawsuits are a check on the system and help people take responsibility for their actions and how healthcare providers should have some accountability through lawsuits. And it was a little surprising to me because I think even I've bought into the idea that everyone just starts out with the belief that medical malpractice cases are bad and bad for their pocketbook, you know, make them fearful and worried that somehow giving a verdict for this plaintiff against this doctor is going to hurt them financially because it's just so ingrained because people remember being fearful and that's how a lot of people react. But I don't think that is true universally. I think that I wasn't giving folks enough credit to understand that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you don't have any checks on the system, then you're not going to expect someone to act reasonably. So I look at this kind of digging down, and I'm maybe just trying to make myself feel better, (laughs) (laughs) digging down into believing that even with what I consider to be an opinion that's very harmful to my client's ability to be fully recovered and compensated for their injuries, that all is not lost. And if we could just get the message out that the way you vote and who you vote for affects your rights way more than just the rhetoric and the scare tactics that's constantly out there. Instead, if it's possible to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is a victim of medical malpractice or whose family member is or whose child is a victim of medical malpractice that's going to need care, if that person is not fully compensated for their injuries through the lawsuit, then who really is going to pick up the tab for that? 
Taxpayer. It's not. <laughs> and that's not a fear tactic. Right. That's not rhetoric. That's just the way it goes. Because if you're saddled with a lot of medical care and you're not fortunate enough to have private insurance, then the state becomes responsible for it, as well it should, okay, as well it should. But that's the reality of how these things go. I think what you said about accountability is is right on point. I think a lot of the arguments that medical malpractice cases can be frivolous and whatnot really discounts the work, at least our firm does, that these cases can be really severe and really serious and really valid. Right. And, you know, it's so funny. Every time I talk to a new client, I hear continuously from people who have very legitimate claims and I'm interested in taking their case, they'll make a comment. You guys have all heard this. Oh, you know, I'm not for frivolous lawsuits or I'm not a litigious person. And I always cut them off and I go, neither am I. Yeah. Oh, I always say I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, because I am. <laughs> but, you know, the thing that changes the decision for our firm and what cases we take, these caps do affect it. And because plaintiffs' law firms work mainly on contingency fees, and the reason for that is so anyone, whether you can afford a lawyer or not, can access the courts, because we work on contingency fees, we are also incentivized so we can all keep doing what we're doing to be taking good cases that we think will be successful and that we think will result in our clients recovering compensation and in turn our attorneys being paid for their time through a fee on that case. And so when you cap the damages in medical malpractice cases, you have now made it so much harder for a family who believes that they have a medical malpractice and have been wronged, you've taken away maybe 90% of those cases because they are not cases that justify the cost of litigating them. Medical malpractice cases always involve, I mean, my gosh, we take 20 and 30 depositions in some of these cases easy. Once we get into expert discovery, it can go into the 40s. That's easily tens of thousands of dollars just in depositions. And then you think about the cost for paying experts to review. I mean, we get into six figures in expenses in the cases often. And if you lose that case at trial, we don't recover for our time or our expenses. You're changing the economics of how lawyers decide to bring cases, which affects the rights of the people who have been victims of medical malpractice. And don't you think that's why it's done? Yeah, that's the whole point of it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <To> just <laughs> legislate us out of existence. But, I mean, the consequence of that is defense lawyers aren't going to have any work to do either because we're not going to be able to sue them. And here's my argument, which is the overarching reason that we're even talking about this, is that we believe that a better check on the system is the jury. Correct. If we bring them a crappy case that they don't believe in, guess what? They're going to dump us. Right. We've gotten dumped. <laughs> and that affects the cases that we take in the future. That affects how we litigate medical malpractice cases, as opposed to the legislature deciding the economics of those decisions on behalf of the citizens of the state in which they are representing those people. Right. But I think it all comes down to money because in other cases, 
on the criminal side, we trust 12 people to decide if someone should be put to death, but we can't trust them of how well a victim of med mal should be compensated. And to me, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. And the courts also treat civil cases because the only remedy is compensation. The courts also treat civil cases as kind of second tier to criminal cases because it involves your liberty and your freedom and your ability to not be incarcerated and value that as more important than just the decision to compensate. And that's not reflected in the way the legislature operates and certainly not in the way lobbyists have control of the legislature in any state. What I would like for our listeners to come away with today, other than a bunch of crazy ladies railing about a recent Supreme Court decision. <laughs> the start um, of a new mini-series called Soapbox. I mean, <laughs> that is that is sexy case law talk to me. <laughs> but what I would like to take away is we got to pay attention to this. And even though, you know, this is, like I said, it's rooted from 1986 going forward, we have an obligation to pay attention to what's going on in our capitals, whether it's for our direct relationship to the work that we do or our jobs or for our clients or, or whatever interests you. Because if we're not paying attention, we can't fix it. If we're not paying attention to what's happening on the ground in the capital, we can't get ahead of it. And I know the numbers aren't great for our kind of civil justice in our capital right now, but if we just give up on it, it's never going to get any better. And if we fail to take the opportunity to educate people, which was sort of the whole impetus behind wanting to do this podcast today, it's a little bit outside of what we normally do. But if we don't take the opportunity to educate people on how these things happen and what the consequence is to our clients who could be whoever's listening right now, like don't ever believe that it can't happen to you, anybody. Medical malpractice can happen to anyone. And it is the only area of law that is limited in this way. And Amy, you don't want to be paying attention to this issue after you have been a victim of medical malpractice or your family has been. I mean, unfortunately, that's usually what it takes. But I mean, it is a devastating conversation to have with clients to explain their rights to them under the law. And they are flabbergasted. Absolutely flabbergasted. Look at me like I'm crazy. And, you know, what follows that is I say, well, if you were in a car accident and you lost your leg, you'd have no cap on your damages and you could recover as much as a jury is willing to award you. It's only this area of law. Or what if you're a stay-at-home mom and you don't have a lot of economic loss because you can't put up lost wages or maybe there's not a lot of medical care that is required. You just are injured permanently versus a spouse who has a job. Whose injury is more valuable? The working spouse. How is that fair? Mm. Stay-at-home spouse, stay-at-home parent versus working parent, same exact injury. Because the cap's on non-economic damages, that is a different number. And the jury has not weighed in on that. The jury has not deliberated on that. The folks in the Capitol have already made that decision for you. And how on earth is that fair? 
And I don't care what rhetoric you want to talk to me about the high cost of medical malpractice premiums and doctors leaving the state. That has not happened. Not happened. Not happened. So I wish that we could revisit this issue on a grassroots level, and maybe that's part of what we were trying to accomplish today. But not to end on a bad note, because we never like to do that for our listeners. What I'm always encouraged by, ladies, is the passion that the folks in this office and those that do the kind of work that we do bring to these issues. I looked at this decision and my heart sunk, but I immediately started thinking of ways that I can diminish its consequences, that I could diminish its effect on our clients. I read that footnote and I started thinking. I started thinking about finding a case to challenge it on the separation of powers. I mean, that's who we are. And I appreciate everyone for that. And we're going to live to fight another day. Let's just keep <laughs> fighting. I mean, we're glutton for punishment, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Please reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law with any comments or concerns. Or look, if you don't agree with us, we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, see ya. Bye. Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you love Heels in the Courtroom, check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. John Simon's The Jury Is Out podcast focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice and dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Subscribe today.